You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. I'm thrilled today uh, to be joined by Dr. Marcy Nielsen, a health policy ex- expert and advocate with three decades of leadership management experience. Marcy, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for the invitation, Steve. I'm going to ask her in a moment to uh, tell us a bit about the arc of her quite distinguished and amazing career. She currently works at Resolve to Save Lives, the organization founded by Dr. Tom Frieden when he departed as director of CDC the end of the Obama administration, where she's the vice president for policy and advocacy. She's been in that role now for a little over five months. Prior to that, uh, she's uh, served in many different positions. She was notably chief advisor for COVID-19 coordination for then Kansas Governor Laura Kelly from the end of 2020, September of 2020, in the thick of the first year, through December of 2021. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about her experience in that period. Prior to that, she served as executive director of the Kansas Health Policy Authority under Governor Kathleen Sebelius, and prior to that was board chair for that body. She has a PhD in health policy and management from John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and a master's of public health from George Washington University School of Medicine Health Sciences and a bachelor's degree in biology and psychology from Briarcliff University. So thanks so much, Marcy. Just for our listeners, tell us a bit about the arc of your life and career and how you find yourself here, but also how you found yourself in the midst of the pandemic as a key advisor and coordinator on this pandemic in the state of Kansas. Well, um, I can give you the long version or short version, so I'll stick with the short version. I grew up in in Nebraska, working for uh, various different strange jobs in the summertime, cornfields, lifeguarding, etc., but came to understand that I was really interested in science and decided that I wanted to go to a little school in Iowa. And to do that, I needed to pay for it myself. So I joined the Army at the age of 17. And it was a fantastic experience that really opened me up to trying all kinds of things throughout my career. And I would say that's sort of the arc of of my career, which is jumping in and taking some risks when your intuition tells you um, it's the right thing to do. So I studied biology and psychology, as you mentioned, and when I completed my bachelor's degree, wasn't sure what I wanted to do next, thought maybe clinical care, Uh, but I joined the Peace Corps and I was uh, in Thailand for a little more than, than two and a half years. I served as a volunteer and a trainer uh, for the Thai Ministry of Public Health. And that's really where I came to understand the nexus of science and people and communications and helping populations and improving health outcomes. So when I got back from the United States, knew that that's what I wanted to do, took a bit of a circuitous route working for various researchers 
for, for some time in Arizona, and then came to George Washington University, thinking I would do global health and work in refugee camps. But it was health reform back in the 1990s, and I wound up working for my United States Senator, Bob Kerry, um, one of my favorite people ever, and fell in love with health policy and, and the ability by including a single sentence in a piece of legislation that would change people's lives, giving them access to care when they hadn't had it before, or giving them access to, to services, et cetera. So I pivoted, worked for Bob for a couple of years, and then did my PhD, as you mentioned, in health policy and, and management, and wound up working in several different policy positions, some doing advocacy. My dad is a meat packer and a, was a union organizer. So working for the AFL-CIO for several years was a fantastic experience, but I had twins and I needed to get back to the Midwest. And so returned uh, to the Midwest, to Kansas City and worked at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Thought I would be a professor and sort of raise my daughters in a chill sort of Midwestern way, but got sucked right back into health policy, working for, for then Governor Kathleen Sebelius running a new agency that she and the legislature had created to merge Medicaid, the state employee health plan, health information technology, et cetera. During that time, I became uh, good friends with then Senator Laura Kelly, who was on my oversight committee. Um, and as you mentioned, she, she is the governor for whom I, I went and worked during COVID. It was one of those sort of surreal opportunities where you see the world unfolding in unexpected and frightening ways and know that you need to get back into public service. And uh, Governor Kelly called to ask me to, to work with a good friend of hers, uh, Brian McClendon, who was developing uh, a, a web app to try to manage the, the spread of COVID in populations and wound up co-founding that app with him. And then as we watched in Kansas, the arc of COVID and the need to have a testing strategy that better coordinated how we were, how we were managing what were limited tests and growing number of cases. Ultimately, I, I went to work for Laura full time and, and did that uh, for about 18 months and rolled up my sleeves and worked very closely obviously with, with the governor, I was her chief advisor for COVID, but uh, very closely with the agency, uh, the Kansas Department of Health and Environment, and did that uh, up until the end of last year and started working for Dr. Tom Frieden at Resolve to Save Lives, really coming back full circle with lots of experience and insight into state and federal health policy, but with a love for global health and a recognition that we have a lot of work to do in that space. And, and so now I, I get to do that as, as part of uh, my work for Resolve. Thank you. I guess that wasn't the short version. No, was no, that was my great. Apologies. That was great. So thank you. We'll get back to your new life at, at, at Resolve to Save Lives and the focus on global and focus on federal one thing I want, you have this exceptional experience of 18 months of being on the front line in Kansas uh, starting September of 2020, early in the pandemic, well before we had many of the tools like vaccines that came later. And you 
you became deeply involved in the schools issue, among others. There was a work group that got reported on in the Kansas press, Safe Schools Work Group. You became a leader of that group, a spokesperson as well as leader of that. And it wasn't just schools that you were concerned with, but I wanted to ask you to reflect on what happened there. It seemed that for many states that were beset by this, a common set of problems emerged where public health authorities were very tested. They were understaffed, underfinanced. Their legal authorities may have been weak or were certainly getting challenged. Data was a problem. Political protection against assault was a problem. When we're talking about schools, the decision around when to close, when to open, reopen, the whole question of masking, testing, and vaccinations. Deeply politicized and difficult. My sister's on a local school board in Pennsylvania. So I've been listening to her experiences. She was elected to that board as a career educator, nonpartisan, and she's been beaten to a pulp. And uh, I think she'll be a one-termer, frankly. Mental health, big issues, but also the divide between what you can do in an urban environment and a suburban environment versus what the rural environment, which in Kansas is the majority of citizens, what that means. So that's a big ball of issues, but let's start with kind of the schools since so much of your work there got reported pretty in considerable detail as the pandemic was evolving, as the controversies and the issues that required decision were moving forward. So over to you, Marcy, tell us a bit about that experience. Well, as you are pointing out, lots of controversies around how to best manage school openings, closings, masking, and so much misinformation that was being shared all across the state in our more urban areas, but, but most especially in our, in our rural settings. The lack of trust that I think your, your average Kansan started to feel for most of the messengers who were telling them what to think about COVID was becoming increasingly clear. And what you could get across in a, in a soundbite if you were the governor um, or her staff or staff at, at, the, at the Kansas Department of Health and Environment, we just didn't have enough airtime to combat the misinformation. So, we know that Kansas educators are held in great esteem. We have a wonderful public education system in Kansas. And we thought maybe it would be best if, if we just created a, an open um, mic, so to speak, an open record of leaders in education, but also in healthcare, talking about what we were grappling with each and every week. And we would begin each meeting with an update around the data, how many outbreaks had occurred, in which schools, in which parts of the state, and which schools had policies around masking or didn't. And, and of course, this wasn't data that you could necessarily publish. It was correlational data. But it, it proved to be a really useful way in which to communicate with the public beyond the sound bites. And so 
you mentioned that there was quite a bit of pickup in the press. That there really was. It was very impressive to me that so many reporters were were so interested in listening to the full dialogue, and and it was fascinating to watch the data unfold, which, uh, of course, we in public health suspected that there would be fewer outbreaks in schools that had strong masking policies. And we were able to track that week after week after week. And of course, masking was just one piece of trying to manage the spread of COVID. We were also a state that early on was doing a test to stay strategy. So really thinking super mindfully about how to test which students and staff in a way that maximized their time in school, because we know how important it is for kids to be with their friends and that social isolation, you mentioned mental health. We were and continue to be very worried about kids who missed out on that social interaction. So the, the workforce that, that work group wound up being very useful. We did talk about things that there was not unanimity of opinion uh, about, but largely medical professionals and the educators could look at the data and point to their own experiences in their own hometowns, and I think assuage some of the public's concern about what was happening. Did you find those forums were able to somewhat assuage or moderate the level of anger, frustration, and distrust? Because you hear these stories over and over and over again about across the country in so many different settings of citizens getting really quite mobilized and angry with a good deal of disinformation, misinformation mixed in, lots of anxiety about their children, obviously, and about their own health in this period. And it was coming on the backbone of perhaps in some settings, pre-existing decline in trust and confidence. I'm not sure that was true in Kansas. I mean, It seems to me that many Midwestern communities may have started this process with with more trust and confidence in their public authorities and their community officials. I'm not sure. I I put that to you, but did you find that this, this instrument was able to circumnavigate a situation or did it continue to escalate and become really difficult? I, I do think it helped to circumnavigate some of the controversies. Sort of hard to, again, from a scientific perspective, prove that had we not offered that very public forum to talk about difficult things, I suspect there actually would have been a lot of pushback over the course of those months where we were rolling out this test to stay program, but wanted and and really strongly advocated that if schools were going to go through all the trouble of the test to stay program, that they needed to really embrace masking as, as part of that. So I, I think I think from that perspective, it was quite effective. It felt like it took the temperature down and Yet, uh, I, I, I do think that the misinformation continued. We saw it certainly before the work group began. I do think Midwesterners 
in general, trust their local leaders, trust people from their own community. And Kansas is a decentralized public health system, which meant this, the state really didn't drive all of the decisions. The decisions around many public health measures actually sat in the hands of, of local government. Now, there are times when you really do need the coordination across the state, just as you need the coordination across the federal government. But the legislature had really put the heat on the governor and started ratcheting back her authority. And at, at one point during the, the height of the controversy and misinformation, we knew that rather than try to have fights with legislators and make this more contentious than it already was, what we needed to do was share data directly with Kansans. And so we had a number of dashboards where people could see exactly what was happening in our state. And then we partnered not only with educators, but we partnered with the primary care providers in Kansas. We partnered with the hospitals. We partnered with the University of Kansas Medical Center. And Kansas, I, I think, are very practical at the end of the day when they could see their own doctor or teacher or local public health official. It helped. It helped bring the temperature down. I just want to add as an aside, about two weeks ago, I joined a a cable television show that you may be aware of called uh, Rural Health Matters, which is a, a show that's a weekly show run on the um, RFD TV, which is out of Nashville. It's focused on rural and ranching, farming and ranching communities across the country, reaches, I don't know, 15 million households. And Jeff Gold, Je Dr. Jeffrey Gold, who's the uh, chancellor of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, who I'm sure you know, co-chairs this with uh, the network correspondent, uh, Christina Loren, and they open every hour-long show with a very impressive display of data that is very up-to-date, very focused. There's, no, there's very little commentary. It's just, these are the facts. And sitting there watching that, I thought, my gosh, if I lived in a rural or in a farming or ranching community, I'd tune into this at five o'clock on a Monday afternoon and I'd get an incredible high quality slug of data on what's going on, on COVID, in this case, COVID plus monkeypox. And, and then the conversation sort of went off from there and it was, and they opened the lines for people to call in and they brought 10 or 15 people into the conversation. So it was a very, it was all conducted in a very civil, fact-based, there was no, there was no partisanship. It was, was free of paranoia and partisanship. And I was, it was super impressive. And it, you just described, reminded me of sort of witnessing that. Another point I wanted to raise and put a question to you is, in the state of Indiana, the governor uh, has launched a commission on public health reform and it's finishing up its work uh, right now and it's uh, one of the co-chairs is Judy Monroe, former public health officer of Indiana, now the head of the CDC Foundation. One of the senior advisors is uh, Susan Brooks who co-chairs our CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security of which you and Tom Frieden are both very active 
parties of that commission for which we're quite grateful. Christina Box is the current chief uh, public health officer in Indiana. When I asked them, where are you landing in terms of your reflections on COVID and what needs to be strengthened looking ahead? And that's the question I want to put to you. They said a couple of things. One was workforce, workforce, workforce. A second was embedding more expertise into all of these authorities, getting school nurses, getting some people have talked about embedding CDC authorities into each jurisdiction, but workforce, 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 regionalized expertise, specialized expertise in epidemiology and data management. Make sure that if you're a local person in, in X county, that you have at a within your region easy access to that extra expertise that you need that you may not have. And the um, last thing I want to mention is a very strong message to engage your legislators, your state legislators, educate them, listen to them, bring them on board. Because if you don't have that, you're stuck. Tell me your thoughts on what your reflections are on what and, and how that lines up against what we heard from Indiana. Yeah, there, there are a lot of similarities. Um, I would say workforce, workforce, workforce. When COVID hit, we had such an already underfunded, underskilled workforce in public health in, in Kansas. And then you are dealing with this catastrophe that we didn't even quite fully understand without a lot of the technical capacity that we needed. I very much appreciate your focus on regionalization because I, I think it's not realistic to think we had 105 counties in, in Kansas. So you, you can't have an, a full-time epidemiologist in 105 counties. The, the regionalization piece is a way in which to use resources wisely. And in Kansas, I think we've just started some of those conversations. They're not without their own controversy. Local control is a concept in Kansas that is very dearly embraced. And, and so all policymakers and government officials need to be very mindful of, of where the minefields are as it relates to local control. The funding, of course, is part and parcel of increasing workforce and, and better training workforce. Health information technology, I just can't emphasize how critically important it is that we have better alignment, not only with within the counties that report to the state, but certainly up to CDC. And I, I think people are just starting to understand the way in which the CDC has to really ask and cajole states and local governments to provide the data that is necessary to keep Americans safe. So I, I think folks don't realize how much authority the CDC, in fact, does not have. And, and when, we, when we are so critical, which is not to say that there aren't things to strengthen at the CDC, but being on the ground locally um, and, and in the state of Kansas, I would say that the data slowed us down in almost every way possible. And we were one of the states that was faxing in information and had less than 
half of the information on race and ethnicity of, of the folks coming in for, for tests and vaccinations. The final piece about working with the legislature is sort of interesting in Kansas. I first started working with the Kansas legislature in 2003, worked very closely with them when I was uh, at, at the medical center and would have then told you the strategy in Indiana very much applied to Kansas, which is work very closely with your legislators. And it's the, the bipartisan piece of public policy making it is just crucial. What I found in my time in Kansas was that the partisanship had increased in, in ways I would have never dreamed possible. And it, and it started at the federal level and the lack of trust with the initial federal response really did come to roost in places like Kansas. We just weren't able to create a lot of traction working as closely as we would have liked to. And, and so circling back to, to what you'd been asking before, why did we create a school task force? Why did we really put out as much data as cleanly and clearly as we could? Because at some point we just needed to get around the politics and needed to empower local communities. What do you think, Marcy, the future holds for public health authorities in a decentralized state like Kansas. And what I mean by that is this has been a really difficult period. People are really stressed. They're demoralized. They're exhausted. They've been subject to lots of political pressure, un un unfounded allegations based on disinformation. 26 states around the country, legislators or governors acting with legislators have reduced the authorities of public health sector. And they're seeing a lot of re resignation and early retirement and the like. Most of them haven't seen significant increases in budgets. So it looks precarious uh, as I look into the future uh, right now. It looks like in some instances, this pandemic is sort of leading us in a worse position than before the pandemic. What are your thoughts? I don't disagree. I do feel that things are still fairly precarious. I don't know what that catalyst will be that will help us start to work together. I read a, an interesting article in The Atlantic that raised this question that I um, sort of took my breath away, which was, if this is how we as a nation managed COVID, where we've had a million deaths, how are we possibly going to work together to manage climate change? And so something, something's got to give. I happen to be somebody who believes in this next generation of, of young people. And if you had a chance to watch CBS Sunday morning yesterday, you would have seen a fabulous eight-minute article vignette about public health, the lack of understanding that many people have, what it is, where it came from, why it's important. And the um, Michelle Williams, who I believe is the Dean of the School of Public Health at Harvard, gave me great hope when she pointed to the increase in students' enrollment in public health programs. And, and I really, I, I believe that Many young folks have just sort of washed their hands of my generation's sort of lack of rationality 
around some of these controversial issues. And, and I hope that they're going to pick up the mantle, but it is, it, it's, it's disheartening to, to see as somebody who's been in public health my entire career and it hasn't ever been political with few exceptions, certainly the HIV AIDS crisis and the need to push policy makers to do, to do the right thing. But this is a whole different this is a whole different scenario that I, I wish I had answers for. But do you believe that this can be walked back in time if there's a will on the part of elected officials of all stripes to change the conversation? Can it be walked back? I think it can be walked back. I think about the lessons that health care delivery in the United States has to teach public health from the perspective of political engagement and outreach. I came out of the world doing domestic health policy for, for 30 years that was really focused on healthcare access. And when I first got to the governor's office and was working with the public health department, I'll say, and, and these are people who I grew to love, it shocked me how many edicts we would come up with and announce without proper, in my opinion, engagement of the people who would be impacted. So in healthcare, for example, if you want to change a policy, you think about, well, how does this impact hospitals and doctors and health insurers and patients and research? You walk through all of those scenarios and put together a strategy that will allow you to make progress. We don't know how to do that in public health, one, because we haven't really had to, and two, back to workforce. I think as public health better understands the importance of community engagement and really partners with business, with, with healthcare providers, it's, it was shocking to me how many healthcare providers felt like they weren't appropriately engaged in public health. What a missed opportunity. So, so I, I, I think there is hope if we can get funds and training and sort of moral support to the people who have remained on the front lines to, to try to fix our, our public health conundrum. But public health does have to be willing to change. Public health has to learn to engage and to do so in a way that requires compromise. I found lots of folks in the public health world who were so focused on the science and the data that their advice was not practical and wasn't actionable. And we're learning. Those are really interesting points, Marcy. Um, I mean, it points to how the deans and the other senior leadership of schools of public health need to modernize their curriculum and their outlook you got lots of students coming in, which is great, but we need a, a, a refresh of the approach that is one which teaches people how to speak to others who are maybe not of your political stripe, those who have a very positive outlook around public-private partnerships, corporate contributions to public health, and those who want to figure out how to align with the delivery of health services so that this isolation... but this stove piping and an internal culture that leads to more inward or isolation could be ended. The other thing is how to be empowered. I mean, it seems to me that far too many governors simply don't 
defend or fully appreciate the interests of their public health authorities until they're really essential and they're imperiled. Some of that is that the public health world has done a poor job of building those alliances with elected leadership and being able to speak their language, but make sure that they know and they, they build that, all of that. We had a discussion with some other educators around these topics. Ashish Jha came on before he joined the White House to talk about the reforms that he's attempting at Brown and the training of the next generation and updating the curriculum and the outlook to be really a different set of things reflecting some of those things. Before we run out of time, you're now doing really important work with uh, Resolve to Save Lives with Tom Fried and his great team there. Tell us for a few minutes, how does this all tr translate? You come in at 18 months of this rather intense frontline, state-based, county-based, state-based, some federal perspective on what you need coming out of the CDC in Washington and the like. I sense from most of what you said was Washington kind of exported problems to you rather than solutions. <laughs> um, but what's your experience been? You're here in Washington. You're all over the place. You're, you'll be in Nigeria soon. You're, you're, you're looking at cardio issues. You're looking at pandemic preparedness, prevention and preparedness. Tell us how, the, how has the experience been in five months in that translation from your own personal rather amazing background and experience into this new world? So if, if I could point to one superpower, um, because there are many superpowers uh, that Tom Frieden has, um, but if I could point to one superpower in particular that he has and that Resolve to Save Lives really embodies, it is the power of communication using simple language that that is actionable that motivates people to to work together if i could take the skill set that tom has regarding explaining really complicated concepts and, and of course his experience not just at cdc for eight years working under president obama but also working for eight years uh, in the city of new york so he he takes the real world experience to communicate to people really hard concepts to understand and i am learning so much as i see resolve to save lives use the same methodology that Tom uses domestically on a global stage and his ability to connect the dots. He's someone who, and, and Resolve, as most people are aware, is focused globally on preventing epidemics and preventing cardiovascular disease. But you've got to be able to point back to the United States with some confidence and say, here's where we're doing things right. Here's, here's where we have evidence to share. And in public health, you know, the data's mixed. We have lots and lots of evidence from low and middle income countries who have figured out how to better manage their, their public health systems, at least through COVID, than some areas in the United States. So I, I think Resolve is in this very interesting position of being able to translate what's important back and forth between global health and domestic health priorities. And I'm still very much learning the ropes, but I, I, I do think that 
the communication piece of this is a huge part of what we're missing, both domestically and globally. Public health is so far removed from populations in, in many cases, but it's not any longer. With COVID, public health is now right there in front of us, um, as is mental health. And, and so what are we going to do with this once in a lifetime opportunity? We've got to be able to, to communicate what those opportunities are. And organizations like, like Resolve really can, can help play a special role. That's a very powerful point and a really important one. We ask at the close of each of these episodes, we ask our guest to tell us what gives you the greatest hope and optimism. You've hinted at a couple of different answers in the course of that. And it's very obvious that you're, you're, you know, you're uh, temperamentally a very optimistic person. So what gives you greatest hope and optimism in this moment? Really, the, the engagement of young people. I have twins who are almost 21 and see how committed they are to making the world a better place. And in some ways, I almost see the pity they have for, for some of what we're trying to manage. They don't seem to struggle with many of the issues that we have really let confound us around racism and, and sexism and LGBTQ issues. They, they really have found a, a way through what are really hard issues to cope with and, and to collaborate and to give space to one another. I believe, I believe that they will see us through. I think it is probably, I'm not the first generation of people who pray for that in the generations to follow us. But yes, I, I have optimism and I can't wait to one day be back in academia teaching those young people about public health. It's really important for us to build up that workforce with people who are, are passionate and, and really care about the future of our world. So go to public health school. Thank you, Marcy, and thanks for all you do, and particularly all the contributions that you and Tom Frieden make towards the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. We're very grateful to both of you, and thank you so much for spending time today telling us about yourself, but telling us about this amazing set of experiences in Kansas and now your new life here in Washington. It has been such a pleasure, and um, hats off to you and the work of CSIS. It's, it's been a real thrill for me to be involved. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Laurel Vibazon and managed by Claire Dannenbaum. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.